sisters, come together now, come together now. It's time to help each other out, help each other out. Welcome to the Soar Podcast. This is a platform for sisters to gather and have some empowering conversations. And in the process of these conversations, we help each other overcome some limiting beliefs. I want you to join the conversation. I appreciate your likes, subscribes, and comments. This podcast is sponsored by Stephanie Brown Coaching. If you have any limiting beliefs that are holding you back, feel free to contact the coach at sociatap.com forward slash Steph Brown MD. Okay, I'm going to share a little coaching secret with you. One of the ways that we can overcome our limiting beliefs is by revising our thoughts. With the source saying, we get to choose a new thought that expands us and helps us to rise. I don't know about you, but I can use all of the affirmation that I can get. With so much negativity in the world, I bet you can too. The source saying is, my voice is my power. I'm learning to listen to her and amplify her message. My special guest is Dr. Joellen Asbury. Dr. Joellen Asbury is president of J. Asbury & Associates, a consulting firm focusing on higher education assessment and program evaluation in social service agencies. In her 30-year career in higher education, she served in a variety of roles, including faculty, department chair, administration, and adjunct faculty. She holds a PhD degree in social personality psychology from the University of Pittsburgh and is the co-author of Focus Group Research. Dr. Asbury's scholarship has focused primarily in applied areas, including domestic violence and families of color, media habits of Army recruits, focus groups as a methodological approach, and designing strategies to assess academic and social service programs. Dr. Asbury served as the Associate Provost for Institutional Planning and Assessment at Brooklyn College and as Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs and Professor of Psychology at Stevenson University, where she led the Office of Institutional Research and Assessment. She also served as Accreditation Liaison Officer to the Middle States Commission on Higher Education at both Stevenson University and Brooklyn College. Prior to joining Stevenson University, Dr. Asbury served as professor of psychology at Bethany College, where she also served two terms as chair of the psychology department and two years as director for faculty assessment. Dr. Asbury also served on the faculty of the College of Worcester. In addition to her academic positions, Dr. Asbury has worked as the Army Research Institute and the U.S. Government Accounting Office. In addition to her PhD, Dr. Asbury also holds a master's degree from the University of Pittsburgh in social personality psychology and a BS degree at Indiana University of Pennsylvania in elementary education. She's a member of the American Evaluation Association, and I'm sure you can agree after listening to her bio that she is most definitely an expert. So I'm so glad that we were able to get connected through a mutual acquaintance of ours who just thought we should meet, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that happens. So I'm excited about our topic, which is, am I an expert? Overcoming imposter syndrome as a program evaluation consultant. But first, I just wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself and tell your story and just tell us a little bit about your journey. 
Well, I often tell people that I started life as a fifth grade teacher. And indeed, I started my professional life as a fifth grade teacher. I had one or two students that were taller than me, but for the most part, (laughs) that was fine. I quickly discovered, because I only taught elementary school two years, I quickly discovered that I felt like I didn't know enough to meet all their needs. I knew the pedagogical part. I had a very good education at one of the Pennsylvania state schools, but I just felt like I didn't know enough. So, I uh, applied to a PhD program at the University of Pittsburgh, which took me in, (laughs) Uh, left that position, left my teaching position, much to my family's dismay, not all of my family, but I was the youngest, and I'm sure my parents thought, we're done. So, then went on to get a PhD in uh, social personality psychology, taught at the College of Worcester in Ohio taught at Bethany College in West Virginia, moved into administration and went to Stevenson University and then to Brooklyn College where I did work in assessment. And, uh, well, go ahead. looks like you're about to ask me another question. <laughs> no, I'm just fascinated. So I'm, I'm just waiting to hear how you ended up from there to where you are now. While I was at Stevenson, And I was, my title didn't really explain what I did, but while I was at Stevenson University in Maryland, I oversaw institutional research and assessment Mm -hmm. and was through absolutely no effort of my own. I have to say I was very blessed. I was offered a number of consulting opportunities in that area, which is similar to what I did at Brooklyn. But what I accidentally skipped over was that um, between the College of Worcester and Bethany College, I worked at two civil service jobs in the area of program evaluation and found that I really liked that particular area of applied research. And then also learned that, you know, jump forward to my work in Stevenson, also learned that the skill set was really the same, different language, different research literature, same skill set. <laughs> and so that's how I ended up um, deciding that I wanted to put more effort into my consulting and doing program evaluation. Wonderful. That is a fascinating journey. And a lot of education, a lot of teaching. Did you thread some personal things in there as well while you were going through your journey? Well, interestingly enough, relative to to our theme, Am I an Expert? Not until I got to the College of Worcester in Ohio, which would have been my first job right out of graduate school, I really did have that feeling, that imposter syndrome feeling, that idea that here are these young people, many, not all, many of, many of whom had attended very prestigious private schools. Mm-hmm. We were at a college that my family certainly would never have afforded because my parents were first generation. So college loans was just not in their wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first time feeling like, oh, gee, am I the expert? Do I really know enough to to teach these students? And I think the fact that I was closer to their age then certainly than I am now there was probably a little more pushback than I experienced at other times in my career. 
so yeah, there there are certain environmental factors that can definitely affect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And imposter syndrome is a real buzzword right now. I don't know if you're on Clubhouse, but Clubhouse is this new social media app where you it's audio only and you go into rooms and have conversations. And every day someone is in a room discussing discussing imposter syndrome from one angle or another. Mm-hmm. And I have my own thoughts on imposter syndrome. It's definitely something that you know, I've come up again um, at various times. But what are your thoughts about imposter syndrome? You you talked about how it showed up when you were at the College of Worcester. Do you have any other thoughts on imposter syndrome? I think that it's probably all too easy for others to sort of give you this suggestion, if you know what I mean. Maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally, but I think it's something we have to be wary of. We have to... Uh, Certainly, we have to be attentive, we have to be professional, we have to be collegial, but I think it's important for us to have an internal and an external sounding board to help us sort through that Mm -hmm. and not allow others to um, undermine our confidence. And I don't mean to the point that you don't listen to feedback because nobody wants to go there. But I think it's important to understand that given the environment in which we live, um, it's all too easy to sort of pick up that suggestion from others. Absolutely. I've definitely found that to be true. And there are different different types of imposter syndrome and they're caused by different things. One of the ones is perfectionism and feeling that need to be perfect. And I think that's one of the ones that develops in childhood and it's like a double-edged sword because when you have that sense of perfectionism it it pushes you towards excellence and to excel and to do all of the wonderful things like you've done in your career but then on the flip side of it you never feel that you're perfect and you never feel that you have achieved and you're you know doubting whether or not you are um you know ever good enough so yeah and then when you have other people who are making suggestions or microaggressions, Yes, then, then that can definitely factor in as well. I had someone say that for black women, she doesn't necessarily think it's imposter syndrome. She thinks it's systemic racism and how it shows up. And so we had, a, we had an interesting debate about that. I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Now, you, as I introduced you before, are Dr. Ellen Asbury. You have a PhD and you wrote a dissertation and that pretty much certifies you as the expert in your field. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? I as think a, so. Yeah. As an African-American woman, do you ever feel like your expertise gets challenged more than you would expect it to? Oh, all the time. Consistently. Consistently consistently because we as a society i mean the sort of the universal u.s society don't have quite so much experience seeing african-american women in those roles and yes i think so regularly in fact i was i mean obviously i can't share the details but i was just having a conversation with my brother yesterday where i was 
not really venting, but I was sharing with him the content of an email a student sent me. And I said to my brother, I'm so tired of these people <laughs> mocking at me like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not infallible. And they do know technology better than some of us do who are above a certain age. But just just the tone, like, excuse me? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you just gave an example of it coming from a student. And I was thinking of it from the perspective of, you know, clients or or other people just sort of, you know, dismissing you. But when it comes from a student, they're in your class. So they know you are the expert. They know your credentials. So I feel like that makes it even worse. And, and they're there to learn from you. What, what do you get out of treating your professor disrespectfully? I say the same thing about my patients. Um, why are you going to be mean and rude to your doctor? I have mm-hmm. the ability either to make you feel better or not. So why be rude to me? Yeah, yeah. And this particular student, it wasn't it wasn't content related. It was more organizational pro- pro- process related. And she didn't say the words, oh, you must be confused, but that's what she did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. so we, we, we can read between the lines. <laughs> yeah. So I right now I'm going through some rebranding in my coaching business. And okay. Of course, I'm carving out a niche for myself um, in my area of expertise where I'm seen as the expert. But for those of us without PhDs, this process definitely triggers some of that imposter syndrome, or or at least it does for me, because, you know, you're, you're carving out this area where you have some expertise and you're like, well, is that really expertise? Do I really know enough? Am I really, you know, an expert in this syndrome? So what do you think? I'd love to get your thoughts and suggestions. What do you think makes someone an expert? Probably first and foremost, a willingness to continue to learn. Mm-hmm. And I've all I have rarely, particularly with students, I have rarely sort of portrayed myself as I am all knowing. I encourage them to to try to come to their own conclusions. Unfortunately, in some situations, that willingness to learn and to admit you don't know everything is perceived as weakness or lack of competence. So I mean, I say that right up front. Uh, I guess another thing that adds to it, and I think about, I've, I've mentioned my brother, I've mentioned a cousin of mine, and when we spoke a few months ago, I was lamenting about something where I was trying to get ready for the semester to start in January, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but my cousin said, you realize you have already forgotten more than they ever knew. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. So there's so there's that. And I think when I think in that situation I was talking about earlier where people sort of see your willingness to listen and learn as an indication that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just have to you just have to interpret that as they own that problem. Now, I mean, it's more problematic if they're in a situation where they can jeopardize your career or your employment. But. And I'm not saying I always do it because when it hurts, it hurts. But it's a matter of, okay, they own that problem. There is something going on with them that does not enable them to accept what I'm trying to give. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, that really resonates with me because I am always the first one to say, I don't know. Um, because I, I feel like once I say, I don't know, then I'm able to give myself permission to find out and to figure yes. it out. And, you know, knowledge that, you know, we're in the information age. Information is constantly changing and constantly growing. So why would I know everything at any given second? But I think that when you are not able to say you don't know, then you really put yourself and whoever you're trying to serve at a disservice because you're not willing to go and figure out and and learn more. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting that that definition, but but I really like that definition that you gave for an expert. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about your teaching and your students. I am really curious about your consulting business and what makes you an expert in program evaluation. Beyond having taken a class in graduate school that really got me hooked on all this. Um, and the, the quick story is that I was enrolled in a different PhD program and I essentially snuck down the street to public he- to the School of Public Health to take a program evaluation <laughs> course. <laughs> so that and several other experiences have really shown me that I am particularly interested in applied research. Mm-hmm. And I like taking what I learned in the more traditional research sense and applying it to real world situations, applying those same skills to help people puzzle out whatever they need to know in a real world on the ground situation. Mm-hmm. So can you give an example of what that looks like from a consulting perspective? Well, let's take a nonprofit agency Mm-hmm. And they they may need to do a number of things that I could help them with. They may need to do a strategic plan. They may need to they may need to rewrite and update their mission statement. But at the granular level, it means that if said nonprofit program started a new a new initiative, a new arm to what they do, and they need to gather evidence to know whether or not it has been effective. Mm-hmm. And by effective, I don't just mean let's count how many people came through the door. I mean, did it really impact people in the way it was intended? Mm-hmm. Did it impact the direct clients? Was it intended to have a broader impact on the family, on the community? So it's about demonstrating that they that the program did what its description or what its mission statement said it was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I often tell people that um, this is really helpful in advocating for additional resources, be that money, space, personnel, Um, you know, particularly in our current economic climate, people are not just giving away things just for the sake of giving them away, people want to know that, again, whether it's money or personnel or space, they want to know that that is being used effectively. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily do that by saying we served 732 clients in the last quarter. Mm-hmm. That doesn't tell that, the, that philanthropic or that funding source or that grant agency that you have done 
something to improve the lives of the people that you touch. It takes an evaluation of what you said you were going to do and how you know you did it and how you know that it had the impact that it was supposed to have or what you've learned that will then enable you to maybe make some modifications and redirect for the next phase, for the next time period that you're monitoring. Yeah. I really find your work fascinating because you help nonprofits and small businesses find the right metrics to measure so that they can demonstrate their positive impact. And we also need to use the right metrics in on a personal level. So not just on an institutional level, because what I've noticed is that sometimes we measure our self-worth by the wrong metrics, like how many people like us, or we measure our social media impact for our brand or our business by how many post likes we get. And we (laughs) might just be using the wrong metric and And using the wrong metric can have really serious consequences because we are sitting here beating ourselves up about it and thinking that we're not having an impact, but we're not really using the correct metrics. I know someone told me the other day, she was like, I see everything that you're doing. I follow everything that you do. I don't like, I don't comment, but I see you and I'm following. So I'm obviously having some sort of an impact on her. But if I just would use the metrics of who's commenting and how many likes, I would feel like I was not having an impact at all. Mm -hmm. And have you noticed that kind of a mismatch with any of your clients? Um, Particularly in program evaluation, sometimes it is a struggle to get them to the point that they understand why you need to do more than just count the number of clients. Mm-hmm. And that that's not really reticence on their part. It's probably more the idea that some of these things about impact are a little more nebulous and mm-hmm. that and that quote unquote, you can't measure that, but you can and you and you need to. Uh, a former colleague of mine used to always say, if you can define it clearly, I can measure it. Mm-hmm. And I use that phrase a lot because some of these things that we think are kind of more in the air and and more fluffy that we say we can't measure sometimes it's because we just have not come to a clear definition or a clear description of what that thing is and a clear understanding for ourselves why it's important Mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of what we do yeah so it goes back to the mission and sort of defining your goals so when, when I was in academics many years ago and writing grants, we had to kind of, we were supposed to build the program evaluation piece into our grant. So if someone has already built it in at the beginning, what happens that they get to the end of the program and, and that's not working and they need a consultant? If I have the chance... I usually ask people to let me read the grant proposal before it is submitted so that I can give them some tips about how to make sure the outcomes are measurable and plan it accordingly. I mean, I've I've looked at proposals where the first draft is survey, 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 survey. And, you know, and on the one hand, that sounds like a criticism, but it, you know, different areas of expertise. So if I get the chance, I do ask them to let me 
provide some feedback on the proposal before it goes in. If that doesn't happen, then the, the best I can do is to try to live up to whatever was written in the proposal and provide suggestions about, you know, if there's a continuation or if there's a next phase to the grant, provide some uh, suggestions about well, you really ought to think about building this piece in or building that piece in. Um, mm -hmm. I was recently working on a project with uh, some computer science professors, a field I know absolutely nothing about, but they needed an evaluator. And, and so initially, we, I kind of did what the initial proposal said, but then I suggested something else that they built in so that I could give them better results. I mean, I can only report on the data that you have, but I can also give you some suggestions about how to get better data to speak to what you say you're interested in. Okay. That makes total sense. Yeah. It would be great to have you up front when writing the grant. It would yeah. <laughs> get the grant funded too. Exactly. Yeah. So when you talk about the metrics that you help your clients with, are they mainly qualitative methods or quantitative methods? I use a mixture of both. There is some qualitative, which also makes people a little nervous sometimes. So there is some qualitative, but they can be quantitative as well. I mean, some of what they need to know can be measured with a Likert scale. So, I mean, it is a survey, but it's a well-planned survey. And so some of that can be captured in a Likert scale or something like that. So, I mean, and sometimes you really do need to know how many people came through the door, but that's not the only thing you need to know. Right, right. Okay. I am getting so much clarity around this topic. So I appreciate you explaining that. The other thing that really struck me about what you do is that you make sure that the metrics align with the mission and the values of the organization, which is key because McDonald's values and mission are totally different than those of the founding farmers. Exactly. Um, <laughs> right. And they probably have different metrics. And the reason that this resonates with me also is that I have a lot of clients who are in institutions or companies where the company's mission doesn't align with their own values and the mm -hmm. metrics that they're being measured by in that company does not align with their own values. And so their cognitive dissonance is painful. Mm -hmm. And even in my own life, I was in a practice that measured physician performance based on outreach numbers and arbitrary satisfaction scores that somebody could be upset that you didn't give them a narcotic prescription and give you a zero. And that was part of how you were measured mm -hmm. and completion of tasks. And my values were connection with the patient and improved health. And so there was a total mismatch and that was a very painful situation to be in. Mm -hmm. So how have you been able to help companies in this area really get that synchronicity between what their values are and what they're measuring and what metrics they use? If they provide me with enough time, which also means I have to advocate for enough time, I do like to ask organizations to go back and revisit or affirm their mission statement. And that's not just me trying to add hours to my consulting bill. It is 
Okay, I, Dr. Asbury, am an outsider. This is the mission statement that's on your website. (laughs) Is this really what you do? Is this really, does this really state your current priorities as of today? And so I asked them to think about that. And, and again, depending on what I've been hired to do, we, you know, I may not, we may not have time to completely revamp the mission statement, but I do ask them to think about, you know, what are your current priorities? What are the things that are most important to you to investigate? And then we sort of go from there. Mm-hmm. But can I go back to your example about the patients? Please. I, uh, sometime in the last six months, I had uh, a video uh, physician visit and I got this questionnaire in the mail after in the regular snail mail and it included questions like were you greeted on time when you came through the door and <laughs> so first of all it made the assumption that it was in-person appointment and this was like in the middle of the pandemic where I was so incensed <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I, I wrote them about a page and a half, single spaced, not even about the program evaluation part, but explaining what I thought was important for them to know mm-hmm. about this particular interaction and how it was organized. And, you know, they had they had what I needed spaced over two appointments. And I'm like, really, you could have done that in one appointment. Right. <laughs> and right. if I had had to drive, I'd really be mad. That is awesome because I think that the feedback is is necessary and you use your expertise as an expert to give them some well thought out feedback. And that was just so, I don't even know, so careless, like sloppy to send somebody an evaluation that was not even of the type of visit that they had. And so to me, that gets to the point of it's just like counting counting beans, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't really care about what is at the heart of the interaction, what that patient experience was, but they're, they're just trying to get these questions answered so they can have some data to crunch, so they can have some way to segment people and, and, and have a hierarchy, or at least that's my mm-hmm. point. Which, um, right, and this particular questionnaire when I looked at the address on the return envelope, it was indeed going to, you know, somebody that was just going to analyze the data. Mm-hmm. And I know nobody at that site was tasked to read what I had written. Mm. So I looked up, you know, whoever was the head of that particular division and mailed it to, I think it was a her. And who knows, they probably threw it in the basket anyway. But no, I so I so appreciate you doing that and taking the extra time to do that because it just points out the ridiculousness of of the way the system is set up and how most people go into healing fields because they want to actually heal people and and have a personal connection. And when you get so many degrees separated from that, it becomes problematic. Uh, and, and the values don't line up with, mm-hmm. with what your mission is supposed to be. So that's the perfect example. <laughs> I know. I'm so glad that you shared that. Have you found that there's some reticence around really measuring the impact that programs have on people? Because there's this perception that you have to compete 
and that if you don't have the numbers like the other person has, then, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to be seen as as good. And, And what do you do with that when you when you have a client that is in that framework? Because. You know, everybody has a lane. And if your lane, your lane may not be making 100 million burgers a day, right? That mm-hmm. might be your lane. Right. So how do you help people realize, okay, that's not really your lane. And even if your numbers are low, your impact can still be high if we measure the right things. Well, I think one of the main things is to communicate to people that this is about program evaluation. It's not about personnel evaluation. Mm. And even in my higher ed administrative positions, I had to continually communicate that because some administrators who I obviously will not name (laughs) really did, you know, want to use that assessment as undercover performance appraisal. And so it can't be that. And then the other part of it is to reflect back to what we said about the mission statement is to just try to assure people, and even if this is a conversation where I have to ask, you know, whatever funding agency or whatever supervisors to sort of step out of the room proverbially, to just communicate to people that um, pretty much what you said, that you need to only worry about doing what your agency, what your mission says you're about. And I also try to communicate to people that the stronger your evidence is, the better chance you have of advocating for yourself. You know, when it comes to those things we mentioned about money, you know, personnel space, the best you can do is to demonstrate what it is you do and why you do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting because as we're having this conversation about, you know, owning your own lane and also being in alignment with your own mission and your own values, it occurs to me that sometimes that mismatch in itself can lead to imposter syndrome, right? Just being uh, out of alignment or feeling that you're an imposter because you're not really just owning your own truth and staying in your own lane. So that's something that just occurred to me, but has that occurred to you before or have you seen imposter syndrome show up when you've worked with your clients? Probably not so much with my program evaluation clients because by the time I get to that point, they have hired me to do a particular thing. Although there's always sort of, there's always kind of people connected to that, whoever the hiring person was that have their doubts. But if you get the buy-in and the support of that particular person, then it's generally not as much um, of, an, of an issue. But um, yeah, I think uh, the examples that are floating to the top of my head are more of ones in an academic environment of people just not being entirely on board with why they need to do what you're wanting them to do. I mean, and and to some extent, you know, the academic environment, I don't want to say feeds that because that sounds so sort of judgmental, but, you know, those of us that have been in higher ed a long time are attracted to that because there is this sense of autonomy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when an administrator comes along and says you have to do these things, to make sure we're accredited, then, you know, sometimes people, people feel like 
<laughs> but but you're the boss. It's your job to make sure we stay accredited. <laughs> that's not my job. That's not what you hired me to do. <laughs> right, right. And you have been, you have had many roles in higher education, faculty, department chair, administration. What made you decide to go into consulting and what has that transition been like for you? I think what made me want to focus more on my consulting is just wanting to be a little more independent, perhaps scarily so, as we say. I know that's not a word, but to to be a little more independent and to branch out and work with a greater variety of audiences Mm-hmm. is really is, was really my thinking and it, you know it, it is scary to just sort of step out on faith so to speak which is why I continue to do some adjunct teaching here and there but yeah mm-hmm. so you're doing adjunct teaching but you would you consider yourself a full-time entrepreneur and then adjunct teaching yes or? okay yeah okay. I would that that is amazing. It it definitely takes a lot of courage to be an entrepreneur. What limiting beliefs came up for you and how did you overcome those? Oh it probably circles back to what we talked about earlier. Will people view me as someone that is knowledgeable, someone they can put their faith in? So if I say to you, I can help you figure out what you need to measure to make the strongest case for yourself, they have to believe me when I say that and have enough confidence in what I'm telling them to do that. And and not surprisingly, again, if you are the director of a nonprofit agency, You've been doing that job for X number of years. On some level, it's typical to think, well, what the heck does she know? She walked in the door 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So part of what I have to do is just educate people about what, a, what program evaluation can help you do. Uh, program evaluation is not about telling you what to do. It's helping you figure out what you need to know. So you can make a purposeful decision for whatever it is you need to do next. Mm-hmm. So when you had those thoughts about, wow, how am I going to convince people to, that I'm the expert? What did you do for yourself to overcome those thoughts in order to move forward and in, in, in setting up your consulting business? I suppose it is just reminding myself that I, you know, that I have all of these years doing and teaching about research mm-hmm. and making sure that I have at my fingertips pertinent examples about, well, in this situation, it's better to do this because of that. Mm-hmm. So that it doesn't seem like I'm kind of floundering around pulling stuff out of the air mm-hmm. and being able to being able to say that. And and, you know, as we said a little bit earlier, you know, it's also important to say, OK, that one I need to think about for a little bit and hope that the audience takes that as as it should be taken. 
Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is reminding yourself who you are, um, (laughs) that you have absolutely everything that you need to do what you want to do and being prepared with everything that you can anticipate might be asked of you. And then the third thing is just being authentic and being honest um, and being able to be vulnerable about the areas that you may not have as much knowledge in, but the fact that you can figure it out. Right. Absolutely. Great great tips on overcoming any type of limiting belief. So I would love for you to share your final thoughts about how evaluating your program gives you the tools to demonstrate your effectiveness. All right. I might need 10 seconds to to kind of think about that. That's fine. We can always edit. So (laughs) Um, I would say evaluating your program first of all shows that you have confidence in your program that you feel like you're doing not only something good but what you said you were doing Mm. and to not uh, to not be perceived as hiding something or like you're worried about what an evaluation would Mm. reveal Mm -hmm. I'd say the other part of it is if you if you are an active part you and by you here I'm kind of mean like the agency director maybe Mm -hmm. if you are the are an active participant in the program in the program evaluation then you get to have some say in what is investigated Mm. and to help assure you that you get useful information at the other end. Because I think sometimes that's a perception as well. And that very much parallels higher education. But sometimes the perception is this is just some sort of administrivia. It's going to take staff time that I don't have to yield data that will not be useful to me. And so the more input the consultant gets, about what it's important for the agency to know at that particular time, then that helps. I mean, and six months from now, it may be a different question. It may be a different component of the program. They might be trying to speak to a different philanthropic organization, a different funding source. What is the information you need to know right now? And what is the best and most efficient way of getting that without adding to the workload of people that already have plenty to do. Mm, That was powerful. You made a great case for why it is important to evaluate your programs. And we've been making parallels throughout this conversation. And I think that this is a parallel that we can make as well. This is why it's important to evaluate where you are personally, professionally in your life. We talked about mission statements for organizations. I believe in personal mission statements and professional mission statements. Agreed. And, you know, so that someone else is always going to be evaluating you at some point, whether if you're, especially if you're working for someone else, or even Mm -hmm. if if you're in a relationship, someone's evaluating you. So it's good for us to evaluate ourselves and figure out, are we aligning with the values that we set for ourselves and our intentions? And if not, you know, how, well, how do we measure that? And then if not, how can we make some changes 
um, and what are the things that we want to do instead of always having it be something that's outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for spending this time. I really appreciate it. Can you share with us how we could contact you for your consulting services or send referrals if we know a nonprofit or a small business and what types of referrals are the best referrals for you? Probably the simplest way to get in touch with me is through my LinkedIn page. Just search on my name, Joellen Asbury. My business is J Asbury and Associates. And there's information there on my LinkedIn page about how to contact me as well as, you know, background information about me, about particular uh, previous positions, previous clients along that way, those ways. And the most helpful referrals would be nonprofit agencies and small businesses. And the reason I say small businesses is that larger organizations can typically afford someone like me on their full-time staff and therefore are often less in need of those services. Unless, of course, they want, there could be situations where they need an outside person who seems neutral for whatever the topic is. But so, yes, nonprofits and small businesses. Okay. I would love to hear from you. Wonderful. And I know I have a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs or solopreneurs. What about solopreneurs? Do you work with them as well? Yes. Particularly, I enjoy networking with other entrepreneurs to do just that, to network, to share information, to sort of give, give tips about how do I survive this? How do I still care for myself? Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So LinkedIn is the place to find you. Thank you so much, Dr. Asbury. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks for conquering those limiting beliefs on another episode of the SOAR podcast. If you want to reach out to my guests, just check out the show notes and all of the contact information is there. If you want more information about Stephanie Brown Coaching, go to www.stephaniebrowncoaching.com. And I'm sure you're already following the SOAR podcast Instagram page. But if not, just go to IG and type in Sisters Overcoming and Rising, all one word. Goodbye for now. 